Well, this morning, as we return to our study in the book of Matthew, we find ourselves on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples and the eager crowds following behind. Now, the way to Jerusalem, as they would have approached it, would have been uphill. Jerusalem was an elevated city, and especially if you're coming from the direction of the Dead Sea, as they were. So that's why our our text this morning will say that they were going up to Jerusalem. But for Jesus, in going up to Jerusalem, he was going down. For Jesus was beginning his descent into the lowest moment of his life. His descent into the valley of death. His descent into the pit, into the grave, into the humiliation and grief and despair and death of the cross. Jesus' mind was often turning to his grim fate that awaited him. Again and again he spoke of it with prophetic foreknowledge. And yet day by day, mile by hour, mile by mile, One foot in front of the other, he went up to Jerusalem, down to the certain death that awaited him there. What lessons do we learn from the road to Jerusalem, from the road to the cross? Matthew, Jesus' friend and disciple under God's guidance, has recorded for us certain scenes from that journey. And we'll examine three such scenes this morning. And we'll find that they're not arranged at random. Matthew wasn't just selecting random memories from that journey. But rather, as this holy book is the word of God, there is purpose in how they are arranged. And together, these three scenes from the road to Jerusalem teach us vital lessons this morning. And they show us our Savior in all of his glory and beauty and humility and love. So we'll take these three scenes this morning, one at a time, and consider them individually, and then we'll consider them together and the main lesson that they teach us. So if you will, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 this morning, Matthew 20, and if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find this text on page 775, Matthew chapter 20 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, please take that Pew Bible with you, let that be our gift to you this morning. Or if you know someone who needs a Bible, take it and give it to somebody. Please don't just let it sit around. Make sure it's used. But let that be our gift to you this morning. Matthew 20. And we'll be starting with our first scene this morning by reading verses 17 through 19 this morning. So here's our first scene from the road to Jerusalem. Verse 17 of Matthew 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Stop there for a moment. 
So as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. You see, there were others journeying with them. Jesus tended to draw a crowd. Uh, There would have been many who would have been traveling these roads to Jerusalem at this time of year already because this was the time of the Feast of Passover. And those who were faithful worshipers of, of God would have gone to celebrate this feast. But besides the normal travelers, you can imagine all of those that would have followed behind Jesus, wondering perhaps if he was going to feed them again as he had fed the 5,000, wondering what the next miracle might be, hanging on his every word. Not only this, but Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem. And those that believed that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, wondered if this might be the moment. The king is headed to the city of the ancient kings. Could this be the moment that he brings in the kingdom? Luke 19 tells us that as he neared Jerusalem, they anticipated that the time had come for his kingdom to appear in all its power and glory. They were hoping that that would mean the the overthrowing of their tyrannical overlords, those Romans that that peered down at them from the rooftops and, and watched them with suspicious eyes as they walked the streets. Those Roman overlords and that tyrannical, evil, cruel Caesar who had taken away their freedom. Maybe this would be the moment when Jesus would overthrow those pagan tyrants and deliver the people of Israel. So there was much anticipation, but Jesus knew that as he was approaching Jerusalem, he was not approaching a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And the mocking and praise of those who would reject him and put him to death. He knew that the excited calls of crown him, Hosanna, the son of David, they they would soon be turned to angry shouts of crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead. He pulled his disciples apart from the rest of the crowd. They needed to know, to be reminded what was coming. They needed to be prepared for it. They needed to know that when this happened, that this too was part of the plan. Not only that, but he needed to to temper their misguided excitement about what the coming of his kingdom would mean for them. They imagined seats of honor that they might assume, the the royal pomp, and they could probably already hear the, the cheering of the crowds as they, the followers of Jesus, the first ones to follow him, you know, they, they assumed their thrones right next to him and all the people of Israel bowed before them. They're probably imagining the, the purple robes that they would wear, the, the riches and the splendor that would come to them. But were they ready for their master to be arrested and betrayed? Were they ready for that? Were they ready themselves to share in his suffering? Were they prepared for that? And so Jesus had to remind them time and time again that following him, first and foremost, it would mean a cross on their backs in the short term. In the long term, there would be the crown of life, but first there would be the self-denial, the taking up their cross and following him. 
even to the death. And so he tells them, this, this is what our journey to Jerusalem is about. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And yet, this, beyond this death that he predicted, there would also be the resurrection. In verse 19, look there, he speaks of being raised on the third day which is exactly what the scriptures record happening. This is, this is, what, this is what, was, what encouraged the early Christian martyrs to, to hang there on, on crosses as they were lit as torches to light the streets of Rome, as they were thrown to the wild beasts in the arena, that their Lord and Savior had gone to death himself and he had been raised from the dead and he would... And he had promised them that he too would raise them from the dead one day. So Jesus, not only does he, does he temper the, the disciples' misguided expectations, but he also reminds them that, yes, there will be the cross, but afterwards there will be the resurrection. Remember that when it comes. Our second scene this morning, scene number two, we find in verses 20 through 24. It's recorded right after this grim yet hopeful conversation with the 12 disciples. Here we read, starting in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. James and John were the sons of a man named Zebedee. They were two of the 12 apostles. And here, their mother comes with a special request on behalf of her boys. Jesus, in responding, he addresses not only the mother, but James and John as well. And so we get the impression that they're in this together. Their mother is their spokesperson, though, because, you know, how, how can you turn down a mother who loves her boys, Right? They thought she'd have a better chance of, of getting this, this special favor for us. Now, we may be rightfully put off by the timing of this request. I mean, what's Jesus just gotten done saying? He's, he's about to be crucified, betrayed, put to death. Charles Spurgeon notes that while the mind of Jesus was occupied with his humiliation and death, his followers were thinking of their own honor and ease. We should also catch the misguided nature of this request. What the mother of the sons of Zebedee was asking and requesting that her sons sit on Jesus' right and left hands in the kingdom, what that means is that she was asking that they would have these, these places of preeminence in his kingdom, that they would be his, you know, of course, Jesus, he was going to be the king. She wasn't, she wasn't denying that, but, but maybe her sons could be second and third place in the kingdom. 
Now, as we, as we think about that, and just notice, we at least have to credit this mother that she does believe that Jesus is going to bring in his kingdom, in spite of the fact that at the moment he's a penniless traveling rabbi from the back country of Galilee, from a town that people said, can anything good come out of that town? But she believes, she believes that he is the one, he's going to be the king, and she believes enough to, to ask him for this great favor. So we at least have to credit her with that. But her, her prayer, her request, as ours may often be, was misguided. Even though she believed in Jesus' power and his goodness and his ability to, to give great gifts, there was some selfishness, some pride that was tainting this prayer request, this, this petition to, to Jesus. Jesus replies in verse 22, You do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, what does Jesus mean by this cup? It was a familiar figure of speech from the Old Testament scripture. According to Bible scholar William Hendrickson, he writes, In the idiom of the Old Testament and of those conversant with its literature, drinking a cup, i.e. its its contents, it means means fully undergoing this or that experience, whether favorable or unfavorable. So in other words, drinking the cup, that meant that you were, you were taking in a certain experience to the full. And so Jesus, he often spoke of his cup of bitter suffering. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, he would pray to the Father, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what Jesus is speaking of here in saying, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink, is the bitter suffering that will come to the disciples as they identify with him, the the man of sorrows, the man acquainted with grief, as the scriptures say. In other words, in saying this, in saying, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink, it's, it's similar to what he said earlier. That if anyone would come after him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. They must be prepared to suffer with Christ. In their minds, being closest to Jesus would mean honor, applause, authority, glory. But Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Being close to Jesus will mean first and foremost, first of all, in this life, being close to suffering. Because he is the Savior who suffered in order to serve and in order to save. Yes, there would be glorious rewards. Yes, you know, given to those that God the Father had planned to give. But the cross has come before the crowns. The cup of suffering before the overflowing cup of blessing in the paradise of God. Now, no doubt, Jesus' cup of his suffering was unique and that he was, in his suffering, he was actually paying for the sins of others. Even as we'll read here in, in a few moments, that his, he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus is not saying that the disciples would, would share in, in that kind of cup. And he wasn't saying that they were going to become, in other words, co-saviors with Christ and suffer in order to save other people by paying for their sins. No, there is only one Savior, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
Only he was the propitiation for our sins, the the wrath-absorbing sacrifice who took the blame for us. And yet the disciples would suffer with Christ in in the way that Jesus described elsewhere. In In John 15, 20, Jesus told his followers what kind of treatment to expect from this world. He says, Remember what I, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so he's, he's telling them that identifying with him will mean suffering with him, being hated by the world, just as the world hated and rejected him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is still true today. That is still too, true today. Are you able to drink the cup? Are you able? Now, Jesus does not give them the assurance of second and third place positions in the kingdom as they had requested. Jesus doesn't see fit to give them the details of who will occupy those seats in his kingdom. There are more important matters at the moment. An ugly rift was forming among the disciples. We read in verse 24 that the other disciples, how did they respond at hearing this request from the, mothers, from the mother of Zebedee, of the sons of Zebedee? We read that they were indignant. They were indignant. They were angry and offended at this, that these two would try to be higher than the rest of them. But would they have been indignant at themselves for seeking the best for themselves, for seeking those seats for themselves? You know, it's far easier to be offended at the selfishness of others than at our own. James and John may have been thinking of themselves first, but so are the others, as is evident by their response. Their indignant response, it echoes the response of those all-day workers in the parable we considered last week who were offended at the kindness and generosity of the, the owner of the vineyard to the, those Johnny-come-lately workers that showed up for the last hour. They were offended at that. The disciples don't seem to have gotten the lesson, have they? They, they were slow learners, weren't they? Just as we often are. They were still full of selfishness. And selfishness, like an acid, corrodes relationships. It causes them to rust, to disintegrate, and finally to break. Jesus, what does he do? What does he do about this, this, these corroding, rusting, breaking relationships, this rift that is forming? Jesus acts the part of a peacemaker. He brings them all together, and he gets at the root of the problem How does he respond? Look at verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, in these verses, we find 
the central lesson that ties these three scenes together from the road to Jerusalem. We have here the suffering of Jesus, the greatest of all, who willingly became the lowest of all, out of love. And we see him held out as the model for Christ's followers. So in the first scene, we have Jesus. Remember, he pulled his disciples together. He predicted his sufferings and his death and his resurrection. In the second scene, by way of contrast, we see the disciples seeking promotion and preeminence, putting themselves first. And in Jesus' response, he again mentions his death. But here, in these verses we just read, he describes it as a, as a giving of his life, something that he's doing in order to help others as a ransom for many, in order to save them. The ultimate act of love and sacrifice and service that one would lay down his life for his friends, or shall I say it, even his enemies. The disciples are called to this mentality out of love. And then in the third scene, which we turn to now, we see an example of Jesus' servanthood. So he's, he's been predicting it. He's, he's correcting the disciples' lack of humility, their selfishness, their lack of, of a servant mentality. And then here in verses 29 through 34, in the third scene, we see Jesus acting out what he preaches. We see him not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. We see Jesus acting as a servant. Look at verses 29 through 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Let me just pause there for a moment. What do you want me to do for you? Is that not the question that a servant asks? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, verse 33, and they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus is on his way to die. And few seem to understand or to care, too interested in their own self-advancement. As the king of heaven walked to meet his destiny, as he made his way to the most momentous event in the history of the universe, the procession was interrupted by two nameless panhandlers, two beggars on the side of the road. The crowds, they're like, be quiet, you know, this is not the time. They, they rebuked these, these two blind beggars. They didn't have time for them, but Jesus did. He was on his way to the arrest, the rejection, the shame, the mock trial, the scourging, the beating, the torture, the death. And he pauses for a couple of common street-side beggars. He doesn't get annoyed with them. He doesn't reprimand them like, don't you realize what I'm on my way to do? 
No, that's, that's not the way he responds. How might we have responded in this situation? Like, we might have said, don't you realize I'm about to go and be killed? What are you doing? You know, like, I, I've got more important things to do right now. Don't you care? Jesus did not get annoyed with them. He, didn't, he wasn't immersed in self-pity. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say what we might say to them. No, the crowds didn't have time for these men, but Jesus did. After all, he came to serve. And so he asked these men the question of a servant. What do you want me to do for you? Was there ever a king like Jesus? Though all should have been pitying him, he was pitying others. Verse 34, Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. You know, as we, as we go through life and the hill of difficulty lies before us, when our path is about to take us through the valley of the shadow of death, our frail souls are prone to be self-consumed, thinking only of our own troubles. Our compassions get, get constricted, don't they? But here, Jesus, already envisioning in his mind the raging crowds, the merciless soldiers, his own blood pouring out red onto the dirt, even as he faced his greatest trial, he was thinking of others. He had pity for others, though they had none for him. What love is this? And yet, this love that Jesus shows here, this is not simply a quality of Jesus for which we worship him. This is also something that Jesus means to give to us. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you a follower of Christ? Well, God, as one of the gifts of his salvation, he gives you his Holy Spirit. And part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Not any old earthly kind of love, something much higher, much deeper. This, this kind of love that Christ had, this capacity for compassion and pity and servanthood for the good of others, even as he was on his way to his own death. Consider Paul in prison, writing the letter to the Philippians. Paul was an apostle, and yet he was also a sinner like us. And consider what love and strength of compassion God worked in Paul. If, if you want to take a good close look at this, read the book of Philippians this afternoon. This was a letter that Paul wrote from a prison cell, and in it, we don't find all kinds of complaints and, you know, all kinds of, of like, hey guys, you really need, like, listen to how bad it is. You need to feel sorry for me. Instead, he makes some passing comments about how, how the Lord has taught him in whatever situation to be content. And he turns most of his attention to them. Like, listen, I'm, I'm thinking about you guys. I'm concerned about Euodia and Syntyche not getting along in your church. I... I care about what you guys are going through and that you guys are encouraged. God worked his love into Paul. And if you are a Christian, God means to give this to you as well. Okay, well, we've considered these three scenes individually and briefly how these three, three scenes are, are tied together by this sacrificial servanthood. 
Christ's servanthood as our model, as our example. Sacrificial servanthood is true greatness in God's kingdom. I believe that's the the main lesson that these verses present us this morning. So I'll say it again. If you're taking notes, this is kind of the sermon in a nutshell. Greatness in the kingdom of God means seeking servanthood, not high status. Greatness in the kingdom of God means seeking servanthood, not high status. And this is because for us, true greatness is when we're most like Jesus. It's not when we're most like like the great people that the world considers great. It's when we're most like Jesus. Look at verses 26 and 28 again. Jesus tells his followers what not to be like. Verse 26, the, the rulers of the, of the pagan Gentiles, they, they lorded over the people. Their great ones exercise authority over them. So the world, those outside the kingdom, Jesus is saying, they measure greatness by the number of people who are under you, by the number of people that know your name, by the number who have to do your bidding. There is Caesar on his golden throne. In their minds, who is greater than Caesar? I'll tell you who. This poor teacher walking the dusty road from Jericho to Jerusalem, talking to a couple of unnamed beggars on the side of the road. That's who. That is true greatness. Now many of us, many of us might not be so ambitious this morning as to be out to be the president or the ruler of the, the nations, like, like a Caesar of old. But still, in many ways, all of us are prone to selfish ambition in, in one way or another. We, we want to be in, in positions where we can be honored, known, respected, admired, obeyed. Now, for many of you who are younger, perhaps it's about being TikTok famous or having a lot of likes and followers on social media. We want to have a certain image, a certain presence that people envy. We want them to to envy our looks, our style, our clothes, our lifestyle. For others, it may be that they become skilled at manipulating others. They have a way of getting others to do what they want. And, And that gives them kind of like a, a drug, a, a certain sense, of, a certain kind of high when they can get someone else to do what they want for them. It makes them feel insecure and, and afraid when others don't listen to them. Now, if this is you, and if you're a person who is often manipulating others, you probably don't realize it. You probably don't know that you're a manipulative person. You may need the help of of others to help you recognize that. Those who love and care about you, being honest with you in order to help you see it. Manipulation can be a very subtle thing, but at its root is self-centeredness. This desire not to serve, but to be served. To make others serve your desires, your agenda, to do your bidding, to do things your way. It's about power and this selfish ambition for power. And it destroys marriages and homes and friendships. It makes the workplace a miserable place to be. Selfish ambition, a desire to be served rather than to serve. 
Jesus says to us, that's not greatness. Look at me. See the king of the universe in human flesh entering into his creation. Not to be served, but to serve. Jesus didn't keep entourages of servants that washed his clothes and did his bidding, kept his, his shining armor clean and brought him riches from afar. Instead, Jesus often had no place to lay his head. He said, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was born, after all, in a feeding trough. He came not to be served, but to serve. That, brothers and sisters, don't you see, that is true greatness, to be like our Savior, to have that kind of love that he had. Greatness for us is being more like our Lord Jesus. The more we can come to reflect his wonderful character, the more honored we are. You know, it's an honor for children if they, if they love their parents. <laughs> you, you'll often see them kind of imitating their, their like a, a son, you know, imitating his father. Or you might see a, a, a somebody imitating one of their, their heroes. Maybe, a, maybe it's a pro athlete or something. They want to have that haircut like, like so-and-so has. They, they admire them, and so they want to imitate them. Christian, don't you admire your Lord and Savior? Follow in his footsteps. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Because when we're, we're most like Jesus when we're serving others. So what does this look like? Let's think a little bit more practically here. Masters, what, are they, what do masters do? Masters want their servants to know what they like and what they don't like. They, they have the ex expectation that their servants will take this knowledge and so better serve them, do their bidding. Servants, on the other hand, are intent on listening, on knowing the wishes and needs of their masters so they can better serve. So what role do you tend to take in your relationships, in your, in your conversations? I confess, as I think about this, I often find myself too quick to let others know about me than for me to learn them. Too quick to express my own opinions, my own likes and dislikes, rather than being genuinely interested in theirs so I can better serve them. But if you and I are to follow Christ's call to serve, we must learn to be good listeners to learn those around us so that we can best know how to lovingly serve them. What's bothering them right now? What are they afraid of? What are they struggling with? What do they like? How can I, as Romans 12 says, outdo them in, in showing honor to them? How can, I, how can I love and honor those around me? My friends, start with those closest to you. Start, start at home. Husbands, I encourage you to, to seek out your wives in conversation. Talk to them. Ask them questions that probe deeper than just telling them, you know, what they did while you were apart. You know, oftentimes, just the way we ask questions can be unhelpful. We ask, how was your day? And then, what does your wife say? Or your, or your girlfriend? 
Well, I did this and that and the other. Well, yeah, okay, that tells me what you did, but how are you? How are you doing? Like, how's your, how's your soul today? How's your heart? What's, making, what's encouraging you today? What's making you happy? Is there something that's bothering you today? Tell me. I want to know. This is surely what it means for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, as 1 Peter 3, 7 commands us. Greatness in the kingdom of God means seeking servanthood, not high status, because true greatness is to be most like Jesus, and it's when we're serving others that we're most like him. Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice how verse 28 begins. Look at the beginning of verse 28. He says, even as. So he's using himself as the, as the, the model, the comparison. Disciples, don't live like those pagan Gentiles. Seek to be first in service. Even as I serve, I'm the model, follow me. Christ has served us, not just by showing pity and compassion for us, not, not just by teaching us, and not just by humbling himself and, and living in poverty, but he went further. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. What greater act of service could he do? I would just encourage you this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, or perhaps you've, you would call yourself a Christian, but your relationship with God is more like a business deal where you're trying to do enough. You're trying to make your good outweigh your bad. You're trying to pass his, his test, as it were. Well, let me tell you, you've already failed. There's no amount of good that you can do that can ever erase the bad that you've done, the, the red in your, in your ledger. Jesus, Jesus warned us of that. In God's word, it says that if, even if someone were to keep every single one of God's laws except for one, that one little imperfection makes us a transgressor. And as the book of James says, they become guilty of the whole law. They've become a lawbreaker. And the, the debt, the penalty for that sin is hell. That may not sound fair to us, but who are we to sit in judgment on our maker and tell him what he should and shouldn't do? The fact is, the fact is that it's appointed to us once to die and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27 says. So you may not like God's standards of justice, but that won't change anything, friend. You will still stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account and if there is one flaw on your record, hell. But that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came, not to be served, but to serve, because he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to take that infinite penalty upon himself, and that's why he died on the cross. That's why he gave his life as a ransom for many. He was standing in the place of sinners, to take upon himself our penalty because he loved us. Friend, you need this salvation this morning. Come to Jesus. 
How, how do you receive this salvation? It's by faith. It's by casting yourself completely, trusting completely in what Jesus did, in who he is and what he's done for you. Don't, don't try to say, okay, I, I kind of believe that that's good, but just in case, just in case, I'm going to still try to make sure my good outweighs my bad. Friend, Jesus is all you need. Don't try to, don't distrust him by, by saying that, you know, what he did was not enough and I've got to add my two cents in and maybe then it'll be enough. No, take him as your Lord and Savior. Salvation, the book of Ephesians says, is not of works, lest anyone should boast. He is the Savior and Jesus has paid it all. If you have any questions about, about your own your own relationship with God and how you can be saved, I would encourage you, come talk to me after the service. If you're not sure if you have eternal life, if, you, if you're not sure that if you died this afternoon and stood before God, that you would go into heaven, come and talk to me after the service. As those who have trusted in Christ, don't you love him this morning? Don't you love this one who has so loved you that he gave himself for you? And brothers and sisters in Christ, in the power of his Holy Spirit, let's follow in his footsteps. Let's show others the love that he's shown us so that he will receive all the glory and so that other people too can come to know the love that has saved us. The one who came not to be served but to serve give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we, we confess that we so often fall short or so often we're selfish, selfishly ambitious, consumed with our own selves and our own situation and we have no room for others. We have no bandwidth to love those around us so Lord, work this grace in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, this supernatural love of Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would see the one who gave themselves, himself for sinners, that they would trust in him, they would receive his salvation and be saved even today. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.